Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. I am here with Denise Lee Yan, author of Fusion and What Great Brands Do. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I... Uh, I read your book, uh, you know, maybe about a month ago, and it just resonated with me so so deeply. Uh, as I was saying, I just want to, uh, I was excited to get you on here and to pick your brain, and we can nerd out on sort of employer branding and uh, culture and the role that that plays in the type of performance that we're all trying to generate in our little kind of corners of the organizations that we work on. That sounds great to me. So tell me, Let's just kind of jump into how did you get into this game? You're a thought leader on branding. You're a thought leader on culture. I'm sure when you were, you know, a little girl, you weren't like, I want to write a couple of books on this topic. You know, like, how did you wind up here? Yeah. Well, actually, when I was very young, I started this passion for brands. Um, now, this is going to date me a little bit, but when I was growing up, Nike came out as a brand. And I remember like how powerful and how exciting it was and kind of being fascinated by that. In fact, I wrote a high school paper on Nike's brand. Um, so it shows you that I've been like, I love brands. I've been passionate about them for a long time. And through my career, I've had the opportunity to work on some um, great brands. My last corporate job was with Sony Electronics, heading up brand and strategy in their corporate marketing group. And, um, you know, so as, a, as whether as a consumer or as a professional, I've been fascinated by brands. But one thing that I have you know, learned over and over and you know, really grown in my understanding of brands and brand building is how important the internal organizational culture is to that external brand identity. And so after writing What Great Brands Do, my first book, and really, you know, the first chapter of that book talks about great brands start inside. They start by cultivating a strong brand-led culture inside the organization. After I wrote that and found that that really not only resonated with readers, but also became more and more true in my consulting work, I felt like I really needed to explore this idea of brand and culture Fusion, and that's how I ended up with my, uh, my most recent book, Fusion, how integrating brand and culture powers the world's greatest companies. So why do you think, this seems like kind of a, a new idea. Um, it seems, again, after reading your book, I was just like, wow, this is so, sort of so well put. It's so kind of concise and uh, boils this thing down. And again, you were kind of preaching to the choir with me reading it. But why do you think it's been so long or why has it taken so long for organizations to understand how these two things can be synergistic with each other? And why is that so hard for them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that for a long time, people felt like your brand was this kind of image or external idea, your name, your logo, your visual identity. And they could, and companies could promote their brands through marketing and other external efforts. What has happened in recent years is that um, the ability to differentiate and compete on that kind of external image has really, I think, diminished for a lot of companies. And at the same time, 
customers and other people have a lot more visibility into the internal workings of the organization. And, and um, there's been a, a revelation of kind of the disconnects that, that existed a lot of companies between what they're saying they are, you know, and their advertising and external branding and how they really operate as an organization internally. And when those disconnects, as those disconnects have been revealed, I think that people have real, business leaders have realized, you know, it, we can't continue to operate as if these were two separate things. They really need to be integrated and aligned. Now, I will say that if you think about some of the companies and brands that we have admired for years, you know, whether that is, you know, Apple or Starbucks or Southwest Airlines, they have been doing, you know, what I call brand culture fusion all along. They just didn't call it that. So I think that sometimes, you know, um, what or, or what I've tried to do in my book is kind of bring to light and show people, hey, this is what has been fueling some of the most successful companies and brands, and here's how you actually can do it at your organization. Yeah, and I love that part about your book um, because not only, you know, some of these books they get very. Um, they get very philosophical and they get very academic. And I think those anecdotes and those stories and those studies and those, you know, case studies, whatever, of these companies that kind of get it right, those are obviously super helpful and are great handles to hold on to this idea. But what I thought was really great about your book is you incorporate that piece that you just talked about, which is like, here's a recipe on how to bake this cake in your own, your own organization. And here's some actionable steps that you can take to start seeing some of the benefits that these brands like Southwest or like, you know, Starbucks have been reaping over the last, you know, several decades or, or whatever. So just, I just love that. I love that piece of it because many times you'll read a book like that and then you're like, yeah, yeah, I agree. And then you're just like staring at a blank piece of paper, like, okay, now, now what, you know what I mean? Right. I, and I'm so glad to hear you say that, Nick, because specifically in the area of culture, because I think that what prompted me to write the book was in part because there had been quite a, you know, the, the interest in culture has been building for a while now, but I think that most of the books that had been written um, have been about kind of like either great, like great examples, like, you know, Howard Schultz talking about what happened at Starbucks or, you know, just kind of like, you know, there, there's a lot of rhetoric about how you need to have kind of this um, kind of warm, fuzzy, friendly, nurturing culture out there. And, but there is really no one saying, okay, well then how do you actually cultivate a culture? And there's no one saying that, hey, you know what? That warm, fuzzy, friendly culture might be right for one organization, but not, might not be right for you. And you need to determine what is the right culture for you. So I really kind of wanted to give business leaders like, like you said, kind of practical advice, like what can they do if they know that culture is important so that they can actually cultivate the kind of culture that builds their brand and their business? Yeah, the, uh, I don't know, I just loved it. I, I could probably keep going on about it. Um, but this, this fusion that ends up happening, you know, I like what you just said there where you said, um, you know, there was almost this kind of generic brand or this generic culture that everybody thought that they had to create. And I think it's like, oh, that's, uh, you know, I, you know, whatever, air hockey in the break room or, you know, video games in, in the <laughs> right. or whatever. But I think what that ends up doing is that kind of generic, that generic type of a culture ends up not really attracting the employees that you really may need for that. I mean, I'm not saying that that picture of a culture isn't right for some businesses, but it's definitely not, to your point, right for every single business. You know what I mean? Maybe you need something more 
you know, if you're an engineering company, this is going to sound very stupid, right? Uh, but if you're an engineering company, maybe you need, you know, it's got to be more, more pragmatic and your internal culture needs to be more buttoned up and, you know, not coloring outside the line and so forth because you want to attract the people that that appeals to. Having a bunch of break rooms and kombucha bars in the, you know, in the, <laughs> in the play area might not appeal to those people or might attract people who, to your point, end up bringing experiences that are maybe outside of the lines of what that organization is meant to, to bring to the marketplace. Precisely. And so you, know, you need to have the clarity on what, what kind of you know, business and brand you want to be and then what kind of culture is going to enable that. And, and so exactly. Um, you know, I think that my, one of the main points that I talk with business leaders about is that your culture can't just be good. It has to be unique. It has to be specific to you, your organization, your employees, and the results that you want to produce. And so when people get that piece of it wrong, right? Let's say this is a, this is a scenario where a company's like, hey, I get this culture thing. I'm reading a lot about it. We got to do something. Who has a culture I like? Okay, we need to do that. Let me sort of mimic that, right? Let me sort of synthetically recreate that here. Where do you think, like, why is it hard for them to recognize that they need their own thumbprint of a culture, right? Like their own sort of unique DNA for their culture. Why does that fall out of the equation sometimes? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, a couple of things come to mind. One is that, you know, there is a common baseline um, or a common definition of a good culture, a good culture that every organization should prescribe to. And so I think that sometimes people just kind of end up in that mode of, okay, well, we need to, you know, have, you know, decent benefits and, you know, supportive managers and, uh, you know, a, a healthy workplace, you know, just kind of very basic things. And they just kind of stop there. And they don't realize that that really is only like the, the foundation and that if you really want to not only um, recruit and retain and motivate your employees, but then again, as we've been saying, kind of produce the specific results that you want, you're going to need to like kind of take it to the next level and identify what is unique or what should be unique about the experience you're giving to employees and about the culture that you're creating and the way that people are working. And, um, you know, so I think that some people just kind of maybe, you know, get stuck. Um, and then maybe also related to that is that, you know, culture building is hard work. And I think that some leaders don't realize that it is a strategic leadership responsibility that needs to impact every aspect of your organization. And um, so I think some leaders will just kind of delegate culture building to HR and say, oh, well, you know, you just need to kind of, you know, you HR manager, just go make sure that our employees are happy without recognizing that the way that your organization is designed, how you operate, like your processes, your actual operations, um, how you engage your employees from the moment they become aware of you as a potential employer to the end of employment, all of these things need to be worked on. And if you as a leader of your organization don't champion that effort, it's not going to happen. And so, you know, it requires kind of uh, focus and discipline and commitment and, and real leadership in that. And, you know, you, you talk a lot about employee experience. And I think in your book, you talked about a lot of really interesting um, separations that occur uh, from an organizational standpoint with respect to how they market or communicate with these different groups, right? The external group of clients or potential clients and the internal group. And as we're... And I think one of the things you talked about was, you know, really think about that employee experience from 
to your point, when they first hear about you, to through onboarding and through training and then through you know full-time position and so forth, what tips would you give or you know, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like who owns it, who owns employee experience? Like to draw the parallel yeah. culture piece, like you, what you're saying is HR by itself can't own culture. It needs to have buy-in from the top for that strategic leadership to like really, really take hold. And I'm trying to kind of pull that kind of framework down to this employee experience thing. Like who do you think owns that and how do we connect the desire for a great employee experience from kind of tip to tail uh, as they get sort of passed to different, you know, here, now you're in this group or now mm -hmm. you're with this manager. Do you, you understand what I'm asking? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think the best answer I think is to um, make parallel or kind of follow what you would be doing for customer experience and the way you'd be thinking about customer experience. I think that, you know, um, Customer experience is more than marketing, although a lot of times it, it, it originates within marketing. But I think that organizations are starting to realize that every aspect of your company needs to be oriented around customer experience because it does involve it does involve marketing, but it's like sales and service and operations and logistics and you know it, just every aspect of your organization plays a role in delivering the customer experience. And in the same way, almost every organization plays a role in employee experience as well and so you know first of all you just kind of need to recognize that employee experience is this multidisciplinary function and that while you know HR may fearhead it uh, you know, it might make sense to actually have an employee experience department like they they have had at, at um, Airbnb and Adobe and other companies like that um, or some kind of leadership that brings together all these different functions now, once you do that, then you start, again, following like the model that you would use for customer experience design, which is, you know, there's a process that you go through. It's like understanding your customers or understanding your employees. So segmenting them, um, developing, doing research and, and developing empathy so you really understand what your employees are are wanting and needing and how different employees want and need different things. And then, you know, there's this kind of journey mapping stage of a customer experience, which kind of identifies all the different steps that a customer goes through. Well, you need to do the same thing for employees, identify all the different experiences and interactions and touch points and steps that they go through as an employee. Um, then, you know, you have a design model or some way of kind of organizing everything that you are designing around customer experience. And then you actually, go to work in prototyping and testing and then ultimately implementing different aspects of customer experience and you do the same for employee experience. And I outline all of these steps in the book and also then provide examples of companies that are doing each one of those steps and, and also some tools and frameworks that you can use in those steps so that you really um, end up with a, a full, fully designed employee experience, you know, from end to end that incorporates, incorporates all these different functions. Um, probably, I will say, I said this a little bit at the beginning about listening to your employees or researching them, but I will say that one of the most important things about employee experience is that employees are engaged and involved in the entire process. You know, um, I had the opportunity to talk with Mark Levy, who used to head up employee experience at Airbnb, and he always says that, you know, employee experience isn't something you do to employees. It's something you do with and for them. And so I think that, you know, making sure that employees are involved in that whole process of design and management is, is probably the overarching umbrella point that I would make about employee experience. Design. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like a doctor 
you know, prescribing medicine without ever even checking, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like you need those insights. Otherwise you're just inferring and you're guessing and getting that straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. It's going to give you better insights and that are going to be more actionable and probably going to resonate more with type with the people that you're trying, whose experience you're trying to affect. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting thing um, that, you know, that customer experience thing, that whole process that you outlined, that's like a well, that's a well or rel relatively well-known topic, area of study, you know, process. Like everybody understands that, hey, this client, you know, we got to get the client experience right. We have to understand that journey and all that. It's kind of interesting that, you know, it just kind of struck me as you were describing it. It's kind of interesting that this same process, which is kind of a mirror that's done internally instead of, instead of externally, is only now just, just being done. And, you know, the focus sort of in the past has been, you know, in, in, in the industrial age, uh, you know, the focus was on product and goods, whereas now we're in this sort of knowledge work age where the product is really kind of services and the assets in the old world were machines and process, whereas now the assets are people. It's just like, it's almost like there's this emergence or this sort of uh, cocoon that we're coming out of to understand that, like, we really need to focus on the people the people in this equation, first and foremost, both internal and external, and that's what's going to allow us to really elevate and expand the impact of our organizations. Yeah, well, I think that there are some um, developments and dynamics that are really affecting this emergence. I mean, there there is kind of a culture crisis that's going on, at least in corporate America. I think, you know, if you think back to um, you know, before the COVID pandemic and everything that we're dealing with now, which I will talk about just a moment, but if you kind of think back to, you know, what was happening only like maybe six months or a year ago in terms of, of the culture and organizations, it was, you know, kind of me too and sexual harassment and discrimination and companies really struggling with that. Um, and even if it wasn't to that degree of it being um, a problem, I think a lot of companies struggle with diversity and inclusion. Um, in many sectors, there has been a war for talent which again, I think because of the pandemic, we've kind of seen unemployment skyrocket. And so that seems kind of weird for me to be talking about a war for talent, but trust me, I, I probably, I would think probably in six, 12 months, we're going to get back to a point where highly skilled, highly talented, experienced workers become this commodity again, companies need to compete for and really attract this talent to their organizations. And they need to understand that, that, that employee experience is the way that you do that. So there, there are lots of, oh, and then I should mention, you know, the, the, um, the scandals or the crises, you know, at Uber or at Wells Fargo, you know, um, the, the Olympics, the United States, or the International Olympics Committee, um, you know, like there are so many examples of organizations that are struggling with their culture. And I think that that's part of the reason why people have, business leaders have started to really take note and um, have become much more invested and interested in this area. So what do you think the root of this culture conversation is? Like, okay, guys are tuning into this now. People are understanding, okay, there's a culture crisis. I don't think human behavior has sort of like changed in a massive way over the last 50 years, right? Like the DNI stuff we're talking about now has definitely been there for like ever, right? Um, the sexual harassment stuff, I mean, I'm not, definitely not saying it's fixed. Like, there's massive work to still be done on the Me Too front and all of that. But what do you think is, like, what's the catalyst for everyone to be talking about this? Is it a changing generation? Is it a changing consumer, both from an employee or a, you know, actual client perspective? What do you think is 
causing this thing to rise up and fall onto the radar of these sort of, you know, again, this is stereotype, but fall onto the radar of these dollar myopic, you know, white hairs running businesses right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, you know, this, it, I will say that it is this increased risk out there is probably one of the things that, it, that is really driving this is people realize and business leaders and companies realizing that, um, you know, these, the, the crack, the chinks in the armor that they could have like kind of hidden in the past are now out there and revealed for everyone to see. And so there's a huge like reputational risk to organizations if they aren't um, uh, designing and managing a, a healthy and effective culture within their organizations. But to your point, I think something you said in there was really important is that there has been this kind of um, change in the employee-employer relationship where there is this kind of consumerization of employment now. Part of it has to do, like you said, generally, I think, you know, younger workers tend to view employment differently. Also, you know, there's like social media sites like LinkedIn or, you know, the, the employment review sites like Glassdoor that really enable people to share what their experiences are like. And then, you know, uh, potential recruits make decisions about which companies they're going to apply to based on these views. So I think that there's kind of this mentality that has developed among employees, which is, you know, there's choice here. There, there's, um, uh, there's reasons to, to go with one company versus another, and I have visibility to those choices. Yeah, well. it's like, so it's, those are a few of the things that have developed. Yeah, and it's like, uh, there's, there's sort of more options now. This isn't like the 50s where it's like, you just get a job and you work there for 30 years, you get the gold plaque, and then you retire with your pension, right? So like, yeah, I think you're right. I think the labor mobility piece is a big equation. And then just this, this transparency piece. And I think, again, you know, maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, or maybe the, the neurons are finally connecting in my mind, but <laughs> it's happening in the marketplace where, again, my, grandpa my grandparents would watch a commercial of a doctor smoking a cigarette and say, camels are good for your health. And they'd say, oh, okay, I believe that. And then they'd go buy them, right? Whereas now, like, <laughs> That stuff doesn't play anymore because again, so much more power and, you know, I think 83 or 80 plus percent of people are using online reviews of other customers to help guide their decisions. Um, that same kind of thing is happening on the employee side because there's Glassdoor and because there's LinkedIn and that sort of holistic experience is more important to today's consumer, whether that's an employee or a, uh, or a, a client. Um, and there's, to your point, tools to see what's happening kind of behind, behind that facade, you know? Yes, yes. And so now we have the effects of the pandemic and the changing nature of work and people's work lives that we are now dealing with. And so this is yet another development that I think raises the issue of culture to a really critical point because I think a lot of companies, um, you know, used to rely on bringing people to their offices, to their campuses, and kind of just thought that like the culture just kind of develops organically. There's kind of like this ethos that you just, you know, is created around the water cooler. And, you know, as, as a business leader, I don't have to do much, but just you know, provide a good employee, good, good experience within our facilities and with our offices. And that's enough. And I think that what people, what businesses are realizing is that with more people working remotely or, or having more flexibility working remotely, that 
they have less control over this culture or the things that they used to rely on to build culture and to, and to provide employee experience are, are totally changed. They're totally different. Now, you know, when, when employee think, an employee thinks about their workspace, they might be thinking about their, their cubicle in your building, but probably more often they're thinking about like their dining room table and, you know, and this kind of makeshift the setup that they've put together that they're going to have to be continuing to use for a long time. And so how do you as a business leader cultivate a culture when you have people who are so distributed and who are not necessarily uh, working in person shoulder to shoulder all the time? I think that there's the onus is on you to figure out how do you continue to focus people on your organization and your core values? Um, how do you cultivate this kind of employee-to-employee -employee connection that might have happened very organically in an office space, but now you're going to have to work at it to make sure that it happens when people work um, remotely or virtually? So, you know, there's a whole other kind of uh, phase of culture building that we've entered into that I think we are only now discovering what are some of the best or what are some of the, the tools and tactics that we can use? Yeah, it's really a, it's a whole new frontier, to your point. Um, it probably makes the ownership of the culture a lot more distributed, right? Like, it's now up to all those managers of those little teams of three or four to be that arbiter of the culture or to be that kind of protector of it or the, the champion of it in those little pockets because it's more of like this neural network of people versus everyone showing up to the same place every day and you can where you then have the option to say okay for two hours this afternoon we're going to have a huddle and we're all going to come together in the same room and have a kind of a pep rally to underscore these things like to the extent that that's not possible it makes it more difficult it makes it more difficult to like enact these cultural techniques these cultural reinforcing techniques that we're talking about but it does not uh like our new setup doesn't like negate the need for them it per perhaps makes them even more exactly. to get right so it's like a super chat, you know, it's like you're moving yeah. in directions. It's like a, it's a, it's a conundrum or a paradox that, that we, we don't know how to solve yet. Absolutely. You're so right. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, we've kind of alluded to this a bit, but this, this differential between the employee, you know, the EX and the CX, the employee experience and the uh, client experience, how these can most organically play off each other and synergize with each other. And you know, you've given a ton of great examples in the book. Maybe you can share one of those that really resonate with you in the context of this, of these two different spheres that I think are really just one sphere, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you have it starts by recognizing that employees will only deliver to customers experiences that they have themselves. You can't expect an employee to do something for a customer that you're not doing for them. Um, and it really kind of makes sense if you think about like, okay, well, if we want our customer experience to be, you know, um, seamless and tech enabled and, and uh, you know, uh, just really easy, frictionless, but everything we would do with our employees is kind of paper and manual and bureaucratic and slow, your employees are not, a, going to develop the skills necessary to, to engage with customers in the way that you want them to. B, you're not going to have the tools or the proficiency, like, uh, you know, to uh, use the tools. Um, and you're not going to give them the motivation or the understanding of how important it is to engage your customers in this way. So you really need to be thinking about, okay, what are the specific ways we want to engage customers? And then 
actually engaging your employees in the same way. And this, it goes well beyond just, oh, we want, we want to be nice to our employees, so they'll be nice to our customers. It's really identifying the specific aspects of your customer experience. One way you can do this is to directly connect employees to customers. And I, when I say employees, I mean every employee, not just your frontline employees. Obviously, they already have a direct connection with your customers. But practically, again, every employee in your company in some way impacts the customer experience. And so they could benefit from understanding what a customer wants and even kind of having that kind of more intimacy and empathy for the customer. So a great example is Adobe, the, the software company. They actually have created listening stations. Um, they had them in their offices uh, as well as virtually. Now it's just on, uh, online only. But it's a place where employees are expected to go regularly. And again, all employees go regularly to these listening stations where they can listen in to customer support calls or observe customers in their online store and really try to understand what are customers trying to do? What are the problems they're having? What are the needs or what are the questions that they raise? And then using that understanding, these employees walk away from that connection. I, I think really understanding and being motivated right. to, to make changes and do the right thing for customers and to, and to actually implement solutions that meet those customers' needs. So directly connecting your employees to your customers in whatever way possible, I think is one of the best ways to integrate and align customer and employee experience. Yeah, because then it, then it provides the real, the real insight from a real person on what they're dealing with versus some, you know, some page in their onboarding handbook that they probably haven't looked at in two years that describes our ideal customer, you know, our customer's pain points. You can see it real time, which is way more powerful. And it, and it humanizes it as well, right? Because this is kind of a game of humans. Um, was Adobe the one who views all their client or all their employees as volunteers? Was that not, was, was, was that? Oh, um, no. I, and I, 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 uh, I can't think of who you're referring to, but no. I, but I do think that one of the things, or, or, or go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I won't. Yeah, I was just, you explain. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I just love that picture because this is not communist, you know, Russia where you go to the gulag if you don't show up for work, right? This is the army work. <laughs> Marshall, they have to decide to come in every day. And I just thought that was such a, such a, a flip of the power dynamic in, in, in an accurate in actionable way to view your employees that way. And now it's like, okay, well, I got to earn these guys attention. Just like I have to earn a potential client's attention. I have to earn my current client's business every day. I have to earn my employees, uh, you know, loyalty or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, every day. Yeah. Yeah. What you're talking about, Nick, is discretionary effort. It's about an employee's your motivation to give their best to their job. You know, you don't just want employees who kind of just follow orders and do the bare minimum. You want employees who actually know what is the right thing to do and actually do it. And you, you can't, like you said, you can't take that for granted that people are going to do that anymore. I think you really need to cultivate and, and um, engage employees in a way that gets them inspired and excited about working with customers and, and doing the right thing. Yeah, and it's... Um... You know, if you ever bet on animals racing around a circle, there's like horse racing and dog <laughs> racing, right? And the horse racing, there's a somebody on their back beating that horse, right? Forcing this horse to run fast. And if you look at dog racing, they just have a fake rabbit running around. And those dogs, they don't need anybody beating them because they want that rabbit. It's that kind of difference, right? Like, do you need somebody 
with a writing crop, getting the best out of your people, or are you creating an environment where your people are going to give their best because your purpose resonates with them, or they've given the, they've been given the tools to succeed, or 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 whatever? It's a different sort of fuel, you know. Yeah, Nick, you just said something really important, which is about your organizational purpose and really getting people motivated as well as aligned and focused through your organizational purpose. You know, I think that um, you, early on in our conversation, you asked about, you know, why why don't um, leaders understand the need to kind of invest in culture or to kind of, you know, and, and I think sometimes it's because they haven't thought about Okay, well, what they, they haven't thought about articulating and identifying and articulating what their organizational purpose is beyond making money. And right. so first, I think you need to, to, to identify that purpose and to really kind of think deeply about, you know, what difference are we trying to make in this world? What, what value are we really trying to create that is meaningful and that is sustainable mm -hmm. over time? And then you need to, to do the work of engaging your people with that purpose and helping connect the dots between, okay, well, this person who is, you know, doing this kind of maybe very remote or a very rote, um, low level task repeatedly over and over in their job, how are they contributing to this higher purpose that you've articulated? And, and if you are able to make that connection, it can be extremely powerful because people will make that discretionary effort. They will kind of go out of their way. They will see it as their personal responsibility. Uh, and if you don't, then I think that that's where you get poor performance and then you get lots of turnover as well. Yeah, um, if that purpose is their purpose, or, you know, I, I talked to a guy who uh, runs HR for FedEx, and, uh, you know, he kind of made the point, you, you would love this guy, but uh, he made the point, he said, you know, if anybody asks what I do, I deliver packages, you know, I, uh, that's, that's what he does. Yes, he's sort of enabling people to, to, to do that, but it really goes beyond delivering packages. They're helping to save lives because they're sending you know, medical stuff around and, you know, things like, like that. So he is a kind of, kind of a picture of what you're talking about. Yes. He's working in the HR department. He's not, you know, he's probably not filling up trucks, but he is <laughs> filling up trucks sort of ostensibly by the impact that, that he's having. And the purpose of the organization resonates down into his role within that department that he's, you know, running um, in a really like authentic and meaningful way. So then that ownership comes along with it. And then that discretionary effort comes along with it. And that's really what we want from this team of people pursuing this sort of collective mission, you know? Yes. So this is where we come full circle because I think that that purpose not only is motivating to employees, but is also the, the same thing that is motivating to your customers, you know? So kind of having this like core purpose, this, uh, essence, your reason for being, and using that and leveraging that to engage people, whether it's inside or outside your organization, uh, is it, it, very powerful. And again, it helps to align and integrate these what you're doing so that you really do operate with authenticity and, uh, and integrity and a purposefulness. Um, so I just want your opinion on this. So a lot of the stuff we're talking about is call it at it's at the top of the mountain right and there's a couple of paths up this mountain right one is one that's maybe more on the empath side of the equation you know our organizations work you know for the most part we're in business to make money i think you and i would both view money though not as the goal but it's a byproduct of doing the right things and creating the right experiences for employees and for clients and so forth 
do you think that the execution of this path up the mountain um, plays out differently depending on sort of the fuel driving the leader behind it? So I'm saying that if you look at like a sociopath or you look at an empath, right? At, until, until it's revealed that this person is a sociopath, the reason that it works is because they're able to be, they use some of the same tools. They use some of those same connection points, right? Somebody who's like super narcissistic or, and charismatic, right? They can make these connections, but they really don't care about you. They view you as a thing versus somebody on the other end of the spectrum who views you as, well, you're a person and I'm really, you know, super empathetic and I can really resonate, you know, I can really connect with you and un understand your position. So my point is, does an employee experience at the end of this journey, does it feel differently, do you think, for an employee that is in an organization that's being driven by this sort of more narcissistic or sort of sociopathic, again, these are, these are analogies, right? Like this sociopathic kind of drive where he recognizes or she recognizes the person leading this company that, hey, all I care about is money, but I need to sort of act like I care about culture in order to get this money that I want versus somebody who is on the other side of the fence thinking, I really care about my people and I know if I can empower them and give them a great environment, then all these externalities and all these sort of byproducts are going to come and I have faith in that system. Do you think the experience for the employee along the way feels different? And do you think the outcome would, would, would be any different? Or do you think it's really just the application, like it's more about the application of a framework and a series of steps as opposed to also being about kind of the heart behind the application of those steps? Yeah, um, you know, Nick, I'm not sure I know for sure the answer to that question because I do think that you can learn the process and learn um, how to cultivate brand culture fusion. And there's a little bit of a kind of a fake it till you make it kind of thing where, you know, there have been plenty of examples of leaders who who started on this journey maybe for with mixed motives or even the wrong motives, but over time as they have engaged in this process, they've become you know extraordinary leaders. Um, I, you know, I, and this is not to say that John Chambers, who led Cisco for many years, was a bad leader before, but I think you know his journey of discovering what he was supposed to be doing as a leader, I think, is really shows that you know sometimes you can learn this thing. It's not it's not like as a leader, you are stuck in your identity, you know? Um, so I, I do, you know, do think that, and part of the reason why I wrote my book is to equip and, and empower leaders to be able to take these steps. But I do think, you know, at the end of the day, as a leader, you know, you have to think of, okay, what does that term leader mean? And, and you've alluded to this a few times in our conversation that we are people. We are humans. You know, you know, you are one human leading another human. And what is your purpose in that? You know, if your purpose is to extract all you can from that person and exploit it and use it to your purposes, you know, that is not a sustainable life. It's not, you know, it's not a way to live, you know, whereas I think that if you really orient yourself around, you're here to serve and get the best work out of someone because that enables them to flourish and that enables them to grow and by serving them you not only serve yourself but you serve you know, the greater purpose i think you know, it's a it's a much more um it's a much healthier and more sustainable vision of leadership and i think that you know in this time where where uh you know through the coronavirus um, leaders have had to interact with their employees over Zoom and, you know, and, and there's been a lot of stress and a lot of change. I think a leader's true colors really show and you can really sense whether someone 
has the right orientation or not. And an example I'll use is Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb. Uh, about a month ago, he or, or a while ago, he had to, they were doing a reduction of force, you know, they were laying off a bunch of employees. And he wrote this letter to explain what they were doing and why they were doing it, how they were doing, it, et cetera. And just the tone and, and, and the manner in which he wrote that letter to me revealed this kind of his true nature that he truly cared about his people. He truly cared about what was happening to them. Um, and they, he wanted to give them as much information as he could, probably overstepping some boundaries that other leaders would kind of be a little bit afraid to. But, and, and expressing empathy, expressing humility, expressing care, and, um, but at the same time, also expressing excitement and, and um, optimism for the future. And it just, I think, revealed the kind of leader that he is. And I think at the end of the day, as a leader, you need to ask yourself, what is going to be revealed about me? You know, what are, what are people going to say about me as a leader? And, um, and I think that ultimately, the experience that you create will reflect that. Yeah, it, part of it is kind of, um, so I think that that's a great example, that that Airbnb letter, I read that letter and I was like, this guy gets it, he nailed it. Um, um, you know, part of it is like, if you're, uh, if you're gonna be, uh, you know, the MC of an event, you gotta read, read the room and you gotta know when it's time to joke and know when it's time, time to be serious. And I think if you're gonna be sort of an effective leader that can convey with purpose, sort of the type of leader you are, you need to be tuned into the room that you're speaking to, which is your employee base or the marketplace in general. And part of that is understanding kind of where folks are at and what they want to see, right? And I think this broad humanization, you know, again, this is going to sound sort of Machiavellian, but it's like, it plays well now because I think going back to that great leveling that's occurred with technology and the new transparency that, that we see, a lot of these folks that maybe in the past had been viewed as sort of you know, royalty, so to speak, or whatever, we see that they're just humans and they, we all watch the same shows and everything else. So um, I love that example. Um, and I just, as, as you were talking about that, I started kind of wondering and thinking, why is this stuff not, so to me, this is like the name of the game. You know, the people aspect, the culture aspect, that is the name of the game. All the other things sort of follow from that. It seems though, like, again, this is broad brush, brush strokes, but like MBA schools, they're not teaching culture classes, which is just, it's, it's an ironic thing. It's the, to the extent, you know, it's the same kind of irony that when you go through school, you don't take a memory class that, or you don't take like a note-taking class, or you don't take, hey, here's how you study class. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the name of the game. How do you download information in, 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 into your mind? And the business side, the name of the game is, I need to get a bunch of people who don't owe me anything to do, do a bunch of work in, you know, a specific direction. That's all done through this sort of culture stuff and the organic way that people pursue their purpose, but it's not taught and it's not like these frameworks that you present, uh, they seem like they could be in a class. I don't, why do you think that no time is spent on this stuff when it's massive? Yeah, I, you know, I think it is because um, kind of what we were talking about earlier on in our conversation that, that leaders are now and organizations are only now uh, waking up to the potential benefits as well as the serious consequences of not 
cultivating a culture and not being the kind of leader that does this well. And so I do think that we are going to see more curriculum, or I, I hope I should say, see more curriculum in business schools focus on this. But to your point, they don't. And so I think that um, you know, as, as if you are an aspiring leader, one of the one of the things that you need to do is understand that you need to take control of your own development, and you know, to kind of adopt this kind of growth mindset and really be oriented towards what do I not know how to do, and what do I I don't know that I don't know, and you know, and bring people into your life, uh, actively seek out resources and experiences, and um, be really open to feedback and to development in order to develop yourself as a leader, because you are the one who is, is responsible for you. So what advice would you give somebody who they're just, you know, loving this conversation, they, they read your books, or everything you're saying is totally resonating with them, they see the value of what we're talking about, but they're currently working in a you know, large organization or medium-sized organization whose leadership views this as you know, partially on the side of the plate. This is not part of the meal. This is a cost center. Here, HR, you run culture. What would you have them do in, a cult, in that type of an environment to begin driving some of the change that they want to see in their workplace? Yeah, yeah. Um, two things. One is understand that you can control what you can control. And so within your sphere of work, whether it's just you as an individual contributor, or maybe you have a small team, or maybe you have kind of a medium-sized team, whatever, you can be implementing an approach that, that uh, for employee experience and culture building that really, you know, aligns, focuses, motivates, engages the people whom you work with. And, you know, you, it, it would be um, a mistake to kind of be like, oh, well, you know, the leader of my organization don't get it. So I'm just going to, I'm a victim here and I'm just going to do, you know, whatever they tell me to do. I think that you need to step up and, and be the kind of leader in whatever, you know, sphere of, of work, scope of work and sphere of influence that you have. But secondly, if there's one good thing that has come out of the coronavirus pandemic is this idea that work is changing. Mm -hmm. And I think that now is a great time to have conversations with people, your manager, or maybe, you know, kind of employee resource groups, whatever, talk about this is a huge moment and we need to be thinking about employee engagement and about culture differently because all the rules have changed. And so you kind of, you know, take advantage of this opportunity and have those conversations and talk with people, share, share the case studies and, and the results that I talk about in my book um, and, and really just kind of talk about, get, get people, get other people talking about how important this is. And I think that you can kind of build this groundswell of momentum that ultimately may, may actually influence the entire organization. Yeah, and we all can be leaders, to your point, and it's up to us to, to drive the change that, that we, we want to see. And I think if we have that sort of fixed mentality that, well, I'm a victim, or hey, I'm in the passenger seat of this car drive that is my life, then you're never going to change anything. But to your point, you can change your little team, or your, your group, or your region, or, or whatever, and that groundswell up you know, that, that groundswell organically can really drive some, some good change. Um, I think that that's phenomenal advice. And um, I think right now, you know, to this point about pandemic one or COVID, whatever you want to call it, um, the, to kind of come full circle and look at it the, the other way is that a lot of uh, consumers 
are looking at how organizations treat their employees during this thing, which again, in the past have been behind the veil and you know whatever, not even looked at. And it's, I think it's really gonna drive a lot of decisions, a lot of consumer behaviors and decisions about brands over the next you know, three to five years as we get back to whatever this new, this new normal is. Nick, I'm so glad that you said that because there's something that I totally forgot about, but it is something I've been writing quite a bit about. In fact, um, I recently wrote an article about the culture at Amazon mm -hmm. and how, you know, I have been a real admirer of Jeff Bezos and the kind of culture that he's had, even though a lot of people criticized uh, it in the past. But what is happening to your point now is that everyone is seeing the way that they're treating the, their warehouse workers and and having issues with it and raising it to the point where senators are writing letters, you know, um, to to the company and getting the their um, their resources, like the attorneys general, involved in investigating how Amazon is really working. And Amazon is only one example. I think that to your point, there's a lot more visibility and a lot more scrutiny of companies and their organizations and, and their leadership. And yeah, I think that's going to continue. You know, I think that now that people have gotten used to knowing what's going on behind the curtain, they, they actually want to know more, you know? So um, again, you know, the, like crisis creates opportunity, you know, talk about how it, what we're doing could end up on the front, on the front page of the newspaper. So how are we actually operating as an organization? Um, how can uh, people find you, Denise? How can they learn more about you? Where can they uh, get smarter from your brain? <laughs> well, thank you. Um, please reach out to me through my website, deniseleon.com. It's really kind of a portal to everything. Um, there you can find out about my book, Fusion, um, as well as my other book, What Great Brands Do, as well as all my writings, uh, newsletters, articles, blogs, etc. Um, it's a it's a way to connect with me via social media, which I and I, I would really encourage you to reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I love making new connections. That's how you and I met, which is just awesome. Um, and then also there's information about booking me as a speaker or you know, utilizing my services. So um, DeniseLeon.com is the place to go. And also I'll also plug your YouTube channel. You have so many great videos up there, and I love their little bite-sized pieces, and they're actionable, and so everyone should subscribe to that as well because I found some great content on there. Great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah, we will see you. We will see you around.